Well, hey, uh, when my wife and I were engaged, we did what a lot of engaged couples do. We registered for wedding gifts, right? And that's a really fun activity. You get to shop and somebody else pays for it. That's the way to do it, yeah? And, uh, and truth be told, that was pretty much the attitude I had going into the thing. I was going to pick some stuff out and let other people foot the bill. I was excited. Uh, my wife uh, had a little different mindset, uh, fortunately for her. Uh, registering for wedding gifts was a really big deal for her, something she'd thought about a lot, getting married and everything, thought about it a lot as a kid, thought about it a lot, made some plans, and uh, you know, knew exactly what she wanted. She'd been looking at magazines, talking to girlfriends. She was ready. And I rolled out of bed and took a shower. That was pretty much the extent of my preparation for the day. So, so we came into this experience with very different mindsets, needless to say. And on the day that you go to register, you know, if you've done this before, uh, you make an appointment with a sales clerk, and, and they give you this, uh, this barcode scanning gun. You know, you've seen these kind of things before where you just point it at the barcode, and it beeps, and it's added to your registry. And so, so they gave it to, uh, we were at Macy's, they gave it to my wife, and she was really excited to get it and really ready to start this journey. And I was excited, again, for different reasons. But uh, So we start with the dishes. We walk over to this wall of dishes, and there's formal place settings and everyday settings, and I guess there's a difference between those things. You know, I don't know what's going on. But she found the dishes that she wanted, and she's got the gun, and she's ready to go. And I said, no, 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 not those. I don't like that. Well, she was shocked. I mean, she'd been building up to this for years and planning for weeks, and all of a sudden, here I was with some unwanted opinion to ruin her special day, Right? So we had a conversation there in front of the dishes in the middle of Macy's about dishes and style and preferences and color palettes and all kinds of stuff. And she was really trying to talk me into these dishes. So we we worked it out. We kind of found one that we mutually agreed upon and then being scanned it. And then we were on to bedding. Same story there. You know, over and over again, we ran into this need to uh, compromise and trade and bargain. It was not at all the day that we, we thought it would be. Now, I'm happy to say we've kind of worked out a lot of our differences. We've been married almost 20 years, and, and we, we've learned to compromise a little bit better. But, you know, that, that's a, a microcosm, a little, little snapshot of how the world works, isn't it? We, all, we would love it if our opinion was the only one that mattered right? Uh, we, we all are really prone to have strong opinions about stuff, and we align ourselves and even, in some cases, find our identity in things that are important to us, whether we've aligned ourselves with the, the greatest ever sports team, Dallas Cowboys, or with a, a certain political candidate, not going to say anything, or, uh, you know, maybe you've just got strong opinions about uh, Kim Kardashian versus Taylor Swift. Whatever it is, we want others to see the world the way that we see the world, and, and we're very quick to dismiss people who don't agree with us. We're brushing off haters, not letting them have any influence in the way that we think uh, in any way, and, and whether it's, it's political divide or, or racial division, gender divides, socioeconomic division, whatever it is, one thing is really true. We've lost the middle ground. We've lost this ability to come together and to compromise to see what validity might lie in another person's opinion. But here's the kicker, right? God made each and every one of us unique. We're all unique by His design. And then God wants us to do the unthinkable. 
He wants us to all come together. I've titled my sermon this morning, One of These Things is Not Like the Other. And you may or may not recognize that as a classic Sesame Street segment. Uh, I've watched a lot of Sesame Street in my life. And, and you know, on Sesame Street, they would, uh, they would show you four different things. And three of them would be identical and one of them would be different. And if you were really perceptive, you could figure out which one was different, a different color, a different shape, or whatever. And in a sense... That's what God calls us to. He calls the church to be different, to stick out, but not because we're unique, but because we're all together, because we've found a way to come together. In our culture, a lot of people want to stick out for being different, uh, but the church, it really is different, and it's different because we found a way to be all together. A lot of churches try to make one unique thing, one kind of quirky part of their personality, what makes them stick out. But God wants the church to stick out, not because of weird preferences, but because we found a way to be all together. We're a unique group of individuals. It's all together. That's what makes us stick out. And this morning, we're going to look at a psalm. It's a really short psalm, only three verses long, but it contains a really critical idea for us, a critical lesson for God's church. And as we're tempted to define our identity with things that make us unique, uh, we really lose sight of what God is asking of us. And this psalm is focused on this one thing that's really, really important. And it's, it's something that's at the very heart of God himself. It's part of God's nature and something that we as a church need to be willing to fight for, even if it means we give up some of these fringe things that we use to define our identity and find value in. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to open it to Psalm 133, 133. Psalm 133 is a part of a collection, a collection of psalms. We call them the Psalms of Ascent. Ascent. And uh, Psalms 120 through 134, they're all unique psalms, but they're all kind of gathered together in this, this loose collection of uh, the Psalms of Ascent. And they were all designed to be sung or recited as people were on their way to Jerusalem. We call them Psalms of Ascent because Jerusalem is kind of elevated from the area around it, so you have to go up to get into the city uh, ascent. So, so these psalms are all short meditations. They're all designed to be used by pilgrims, by travelers. And, and each year there were these festivals that the Israelites would attend, festivals centered around the, the temple in Jerusalem there. And, and so faithful followers would travel up to Jerusalem and, uh, in order to attend these festivals. And along the way, they would sing these songs, sing these psalms of ascent. Kind of like, you know, back in the old days when there was no satellite radio or anything like that, you would travel from town to town. You'd have dead air, so you'd have to entertain yourself somehow, and you'd sing songs in the car or, or whatever to pass the time on the trip. You know, now you know you can listen to radio anywhere you go, or put on your own Spotify mix, that kind of thing. But put you in the right mood for your family trip. Well, the Psalms of Ascent are, are kind of like that. They're they're, they're the original mixtape to get you in the mood for going to worship God. And so the Psalms they're they're reflective. They're they're designed to to put you in a mood. For worship, like a going to church mixtape. Uh, you know, not a lot of us probably put a lot of effort, concentrated effort, into preparing our hearts and our attitudes to come to worship, uh, but that's really what these psalms are for. It, it reminds me a little bit about what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he warns against going to worship God with unreconciled business in your heart and on your mind. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. 
then come and offer your gifts. So there's, there's something to be said for approaching God with the right state of mind and the right attitude. And these psalms really are designed to help do that. And so, so as we prepare to look at Psalm 133, I think it's probably fitting for us to take just a moment to settle our own hearts and minds. So, so let's take a moment and pray uh, just for a moment. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for what you're doing here in our faith family, what you're doing in our church, and we want to see more of you at work here. Uh, we want to see the knowledge of your glory fill this valley like the waters fill the sea. And we pray that you would prepare our hearts for what you have to say to us today through your word. Amen. So Psalm 133, you'll notice it's really short. It's only three verses long, as we said, very brief, but it's packed with really vivid imagery, and it's going to give us a lot of different things to talk about. And it all centers around this critical idea that, as a church, we want to get right. So uh, look with me at verse 1. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. Okay, so right away we see what this psalm is about. It's about unity. And in our culture, unity is a word that's gotten a little bit confused, a little muddied. In fact, even if you look in a dictionary, unity is defined as a lack of diversity. Uh, Now, one thing you see in our culture today, we've got a lot of diversity. But does that mean there's no unity? I don't think so. I think one of the things we need to do right away is figure out exactly what kind of unity we're talking about here. And And the text gives us a bit of a clue. It says how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. And that word brothers tips us off a bit. Now, you may have a different translation that says something like uh, when God's people dwell in unity. Most translations say brothers or brothers and sisters. I think that's the right idea here, brothers or brothers and sisters. So it's, it's possible that uh, David, who wrote the psalm, is thinking here about family unity, how good it is when, when families stick together. And, and that's certainly one possible type of unity, you know, maybe for some of us, maybe we come from families that are fractured, families that have uh, uh, things that have gone on in the past that haven't been worked through, been kind of brushed under, and, and, uh, and this psalm has some things to say about that. But, but more likely, the kind of brother that we're talking about here in this psalm is not just family, not just biological brothers. Uh, David, King David, wrote this psalm. We don't know for sure when he wrote it, but, but David was a person who was able to unite all the different tribes of Israel into one kingdom. You know, he started off as just king over just a small area around Jerusalem, and, and he was able to unite all of God's people into one kingdom. And so perhaps he wrote this psalm as a response to that. We don't know, but, uh, but I do think the type of brother he's referring to here is spiritual brothers, a spiritual uh, unity, not necessarily sharing the same DNA, but sharing a, a spiritual heritage. And that really makes sense within the context of the psalm, and it makes sense for us as we explore what the psalm means for us today. And, and as we said, it's a psalm of ascent. Uh, and during these feasts, during these times when the Israelites would make their way up to Jerusalem, uh, they're really coming together to celebrate their common heritage. You know, they came from all different parts of the country, all different backgrounds and, and families and tribes, and, and they would gather in celebration, really, of their, their commonality. And they, they may not have anything in common except for one thing, their shared history. They were all redeemed. They all had been uh, come from slaves in Egypt and had been redeemed by God. And even if they didn't have anything else in common, they all had that in their lineage to draw from. And really for, for us, for those of us who are Jesus followers, we have that same kind of redemptive history. Uh, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That's our shared history, our shared background. And we may not have anything else in common, 
But if we follow Jesus, we have that. And, and these psalms, these festivals, provide an opportunity for the Israelites to, to set aside whatever differences they had, come together in their common redemptive history. And I think it's really worth noting, too, that in a couple of different places in the Old Testament, the same word, brothers, is used to describe people that you really wouldn't want to invite to your family reunion. Uh, uh, different places, debtors, slaves, criminals, they're all described with the same word, brothers. And so this is not necessarily a, a family kinship. It's really a, a spiritual kinship. And it's good and it's pleasant when we can live in unity with those brothers and sisters, people who are different from us in so many ways, but people we choose to be united with. You know, your biological family, you're stuck with them. Even if you disown them, they still have influence on you in one way or another. But, but the kind of unity that's good and pleasant is unity with people you choose to be associated with, you, you choose to align yourself with. You say, yeah, yeah, I go to church with that guy with the Never Trump or the Never Clinton bumper sticker. Whatever. You choose to be associated with those people. We have differences but we choose to be together. And the psalm goes on to describe what this unity is like. There's a couple of big uh, comparisons, a couple of big visual images that David uses to describe what this kind of spiritual unity is that we should really be striving for. And the psalm is, is short, but it's packed with really vivid images. And, and we've already seen that, that this kind of spiritual unity is good and pleasant, but the images in verse 2 give us some other ways to think about it. As we read the psalm, we're going to see spiritual unity is refreshing, it's sacred, it's life-giving, and it's blessed by God. So let's take a look together. Look at the beginning of verse 2. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard. Well, that sounds messy, right? And, and this kind of unity is messy. It's not always pretty to get a group of otherwise very diverse people in, in one room together, have, you, have them united around their spirituality. It is messy, but that's not the point that David is making here. In order to understand this comparison, we need to know just a little bit about ancient culture. Uh, throughout ancient Israel, oil was used as a refresher. Uh, recently in our family, we had some cousins visit us, some cousins that live in Texas. They were traveling all over the western U.S., and they came and stayed with us for a couple of days. And, and right when they got to our house, one of the first things they wanted to do was take a shower. They'd been in the car all day, hot and stinky and everything. They wanted to take a shower. You know, anytime you've been on a trip, you know that how refreshing it is to clean yourself up after uh, a long, full day of travel. Well, ancient Israel, there are no showers. That wasn't a common practice, but there was oil. And it was dry almost everywhere there. It's hot and dry and dirty. And so you travel anywhere, you're going to get pretty gross pretty quickly. And so it was common practice in the old days to use oil, kind of fragrant oil, to clean yourself up. And you'd put just a little bit of oil on your head, maybe kind of rub it on your face a little bit to, to moisturize yourself and kind of refresh yourself. And so spiritual unity is like that. Spiritual unity is refreshing, like, like oil on your head or like a nice shower after a long trip. It's good, it's pleasant, and it's refreshing. It can revive a weary traveler. Uh, Psalm 23.5 shares the same kind of idea. You anoint my head with oil, he says. It's very refreshing. But notice here in Psalm 133, this is described as precious oil. It's not just any old oil, but it's, it's something special. And the rest of the verse tells us a little bit more about the kind of oil that David has in mind as he wrote. Uh, look again at verse 2. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar 
of his robes. And so this, this precious oil, it's not just for any old traveler weary from the road. It's for a very specific purpose. And Aaron, he was the brother of Moses. As you may know, he was the first person chosen to be a priest in God's tabernacle. And when Aaron was set to be the priest, he was going to be anointed with oil. They were going to put oil on his head. And, and it's such a special oil mixture that God himself created the recipe. So you know, like uh, in every church family, there's like one person who makes that one really killer dessert, and everybody loves it, but they won't give out the recipe, which makes it kind of all the more special. This is kind of like that, except God created the recipe. And he specifically says, hey, don't try to recreate this recipe. It's for a special purpose. Don't use it for ordinary things. You can see this in uh, Exodus 30, if you're interested. Uh, God gives him this recipe. He says, this is sacred anointing oil. And says, don't put it on the body of an ordinary person. You shall make no other oil like it. He says, it's holy. It shall be holy to you. And now if you look at the recipe, you look at the ingredients in this oil, it kind of sounds a bit like Old Spice or something like that, or, or like an award-winning barbecue rub. You know, you kind of want to see what it's all about. But, but in reality, it's like, it's like Chanel number no. 5, except better. It's this, the most precious, sacred thing you could think about. And, and uh, it's because when Aaron was given this oil, it signified God's own spirit being poured out on him. And throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit's actually pictured like oil quite a bit, this, this sacred anointing oil. And that's the big idea in this psalm. That's why David makes this comparison between spiritual unity and this sacred anointing oil. The point of connection is the Holy Spirit. The kind of unity that's good and pleasant and refreshing is unity that comes from the Holy Spirit of God. And that kind of unity is not to be taken for granted. It's not, it's not something common. As we've said, it's something that our culture desperately needs, that kind of unity. And one of the purposes of the church, really, is to model what that kind of unity looks like for the world. Unity, not that we manufacture or that we fake, but unity that comes from God, that comes from His Holy Spirit. And so spiritual unity is refreshing. It's also sacred, it comes from God, and it flows to us as the body and, and through us to the world. As we grow together, we get the benefit. We get refreshed and strengthened by this unity together, and we also model it so that others see what's happening, and they're drawn in to experience it for themselves. You know, because the world has plenty of judgment and shame and ridicule to go around. But the church, the body of Christ, should have love and hope and acceptance that comes from God and flows out of us. Uh, we're that, that one thing that's not like all the others. The whole, the, the other, everything else is the same. We stick out because we've got this unity in the midst of diversity that comes from God, comes from His Holy Spirit. And that's really the beautiful, vivid image in this psalm, for these, these travelers who are headed up to worship, who are singing and reminding themselves about what God has done for them and what God wants to continue to do through them as they model this unity in the world. And as a church, we should embrace the unity that we have, the spiritual unity we have, and share it freely with others, bringing people in to experience it for themselves. It's refreshing and it's also sacred. In Ephesians, Paul talks about the cost of this unity, and he talks about the value of it. And Paul's reminding a very diverse church in Ephesians chapter 2 about where they've come from. This is a church that was made up of a lot of Jews and a lot of non-Jews, and traditionally there was no mixing between these two groups. And in fact, Paul says they were alienated and, and separated from each other and from Christ, having no hope. 
But now, he says, this dividing wall between them has been destroyed. And, and the thing that kept them separate is gone now. But he says that unity came at a price. In verse 13, he tells them, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. So the unity, it's, it's sacred because it was purchased by the blood of Christ. His death and resurrection makes it possible for an otherwise diverse in every way group to become one, to be unified. Paul says that because of Jesus, these two groups have become one. And in the same way, we're one. We look around and we see differences, maybe racial or ethnic differences, maybe political differences, economic differences, whatever. But when God looks around, he sees one, one church purchased by his blood so that the world may see and may respond. And Paul, uh, 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 the, the psalm celebrates this kind of unity that, that's refreshing and that it's sacred. It comes from God and it serves God's purposes in the world. And the psalm continues with another really vivid image. Look at verse 3. The psalm tells us that unity is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Now, again, this is an image that might not resonate that clearly with us initially, but it's, it's really rich with meaning. Okay, Mount Hermon is a mountain in the, in the northern part of what used to be Israel. Now it's right on the border of Lebanon and Syria. And we think of Israel as really dry, barren, dusty place, and most of it is. But the northern part is really very green and very lush. Uh, Mount Hermon is a really high peak, like a little over 9,000 feet, snow-covered much of the year. In fact, the runoff from uh, Mount Hermon feeds the Jordan River, and the Jordan River feeds all the other parts of Israel. There's quite a, uh, a lot of water up there. And, and you know, you go to Zion, by contrast, that's the area of Jerusalem. It's very deserty, very dry, not very high in elevation. From May to October, there's almost no rain at all. And so, so you should imagine these pilgrims wandering through that uh, dry desert, singing this psalm as they, they uh, wander up to Jerusalem. It's a vivid image for them indeed. And if it helps, you know, you might compare, compare uh, uh, Mount Rainier to Walla Walla, right? Uh, this time of year, we could stand to have a little bit of cool, moist air. You know, all our plants are scorched, the grass is starting to die, and uh, all the folks on the west side, you know, they got plenty of moisture to spare. But uh, uh, that's kind of the image here. The psalm is telling us that this, this spiritual unity is life-giving. It's life-giving like this moisture. The, the images of these two different areas that are helping each other. They, they come together to help each other. Its unity is as if the life-giving dew from one area nourishes the other area, the barren, dry desert. And if that were to happen, these two places would have to come together, right? Two very different, two very diverse things would have to come together, and that's kind of the image here. It's the same with us. If we want to give or receive life-giving unity, we've got to be willing to come together with people who are different from us. If we only surround ourselves with people who are like us, we're going to get really comfortable, but we're not going to grow. We're not going to be nurtured, and we're not going to uh, get that life-giving unity. We've got to be able to come together with people who are different from us uh, and, and, and not be willing to brush off those differences, but to be able to celebrate that diversity. You know, part of God's plan is, is bringing together a diverse group of people and letting them uh, be stretched and challenged and letting us uh, uh, challenge our assumptions. We're forced to get out of our comfort zone. We're forced to grow. And the unity that Jesus brings, it doesn't do away with diversity in all these other areas. We still have diversity, but we're one. We're unified around 
what Jesus has done for us. And that means we're constantly having to grow and figure out how to relate to people who are different from us in so many other ways. Uh, one other thing to note here about Mount Hermon, it's the site of the transfiguration. Now, David would not have known this, but we have the advantage of having read the Gospels. And if you look at Matthew 17, it tells tells the story of uh, Jesus being transfigured before Peter, James, and John. His glory is revealed to them. And at the time, this is where they are, Mount Hermon. And and as we think about what it means to say that that spiritual unity is life-giving, then the transfiguration becomes a little significant. Just as Jesus himself is transfigured, his death and resurrection have the power to transform us. Uh, God is at work changing us from the inside, and part of that change means moving towards spiritual unity. A life in Christ means we're united, united with Christ, but also united with other Christ followers. The power of the gospel, it transforms me into we. It brings us all together, and ultimately there can't be any real spiritual unity without the work of the gospel, the transforming work of the gospel in our lives. That's why spiritual unity is life-giving, because it demonstrates the power of the gospel in our lives together. Now, the last verse of this uh, psalm, verse 3, has one more part. There's one more line. It says, For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Okay, now with all this talk of geography, it'd be easy for us to say that there in this verse means Mount Hermon or maybe Jerusalem or something like that. But, but if we look at the psalm as one unit, it, it becomes clear that there is not a place, it's, it's a state of being, it's unity. Unity is where God bestows the blessing. The blessing comes on those who dwell in unity. So spiritual unity is blessed by God. And as we think about this image with the dew, uh, we realize it's not just a little bit of blessing. You know, we tend to think of dew as something light and temporary that disappears quickly, but the Mount Hermon, it's known for a lot of dew. Uh, dew that really was the main source of water for much of the area, uh, for especially in the dry season. And so, so spiritual unity, it's, it's, a, it's a, the blessing that comes from spiritual unity. It's not just a, a light and temporary blessing. It's a blessing that lasts and lasts. Look at how the, the blessing is described at the very end of the psalm. The blessing, even life forevermore. So spiritual unity is blessed by God in a big, big way. It's a blessing that lasts forever. It's not just a blessing in this life, but in the life to come. Or if you want to put it a different way, you've got to work out your differences now because you're stuck with these people forever. Right? So both of the images in this psalm, they, they tell us that unity is not something that we manufacture. Look at the verbs in these verses. Uh, running down, running down, falling it all comes from God. Just like His Spirit being given to us or like dew from heaven, spiritual unity comes from God to the body of Christ and then out uh, to the world. Uh, the spiritual unity is a blessing that's given to us, but part of that blessing is we have to choose to live in it. We have to, uh, to do something with it in order to make the blessing go out into the world. It's, it's a spiritual unity that's refreshing, it's sacred, it's life-giving, and it's blessed by God, but we have to carry it to the world. And for us to receive all the benefits of that blessing and for us to do the, the thing that God wants to do with that blessing, we need to respond in the right ways. And so in the remaining time, I want to share uh, three responses. I want to challenge us with three responses that, uh, that we should have to this spiritual unity that comes from God. And the first response is really very simple. 
We should actively promote unity. Uh, God gives it to us, but we should put it into action. Paul tells us in uh, Ephesians, he says, hey, the reason you have spiritual gifts from God is so that you can build up the body of Christ. We don't want to concern ourselves only with our own growth and our own development, but we want to be building each other up. Uh, I think there's a really great temptation, a really great distraction to, uh, to think, oh, I got so much room to grow, I got so much work to do, uh, I can't possibly be of any help to anybody else. I think that's a distraction. I think God gives us gifts so that we can build other people up. So if you're wondering what your spiritual gifts might be, well, uh, try building some other people up, and I bet you'll figure out pretty quickly how you're gifted. You know, you're not going to figure it out if all you do is work on yourself. God gives us gifts so that we can promote unity and we can build each other up. You know, you find people that are doing great things, let them know. Go be a part of it. Get to know other people and, and build each other up and be proactive about it. That's, uh, the more we can build up the body of Christ, the more we receive the blessing of this unity and the more we have to pass on to other people and bring them into the, the family. And, and that really leads us to the second response. Like we said at the beginning, God made each and every person unique. And yet he calls us as this diverse and unique group of people to come together as one. And we are that one thing that's not like the others, not like anything else in the world. But our unity is what should make us stand out. People should be able to see the church, this diverse group of people loving each other well and be drawn to it. But that's not going to happen if we don't build each other up. But then secondly, if we don't actively engage people who are different from us. We, we build up the body by promoting unity within the church, and we actively engage people who are different from us. That promotes unity outside the church as well. Because the world is such a diverse place, but most churches don't reflect the full scope of the diversity in the world. If we can actively engage people who are different from us, then we're passing on that blessing of unity that comes from God and the blessing of eternal life in Christ that comes from being a Christ follower. We've got to be willing to get out there Share our lives, share our faith with people who are different from us. It's hard to do because it's really easy to sit and be comfortable and, and surround ourselves with people who are like us. But spiritual unity, it doesn't mean that we're all the same. Unity is not sameness. We're diverse in so many other ways, but the spiritual unity is what binds us together. And we should be able to celebrate it. Engaging people who are different from us gives us the opportunity to find out what's unique about us and celebrate what's unique about other people. And if we do that, people are going to be drawn to the church as a place of love and acceptance. Uh, you know, one of my kids is hard of hearing, and as a result of adopting him, we've try to teach ourselves a sign language. I mean, we're just barely like toddler level, but we're getting there, you know. And uh, one of the things we're excited about as we continue to learn is how God could give us the opportunity to communicate to people we couldn't communicate with before. We found out that uh, the deaf population in the United States, that's the third largest unreached people group in the world. That's a lot of gospel opportunities. If we're willing to respond to what God has done for us. And God, he's gone out of his way to reach you and me. And in the same way, he wants to, to, to bring us into the unity he enjoys. He wants us to bring other people into that unity. That's a part of his nature. He's the, the three-in-one. And we should be willing to, to actively engage people who are different from us, bringing them in to experience this spiritual unity without diluting the diversity in all these other areas. So there's one more response for us, one more way that we can really actively respond to this unity that God has given us, and that's actively express humility. 
And that's hard. It's especially hard in an election year, right? It's easy for us to write other people off, people we don't agree with, people whose views are so different from ours. But just as Jesus broke this dividing wall of hostility in the Ephesian church between the Jews and the Gentiles, we can respond not with hostility, but with humility. Uh, we, as we said, all these blessings of unity, they're a gift from God. We didn't uh, earn them. We didn't do anything to deserve them. We were alienated, separated from Christ, without hope in the world, and God reached out to us, not because we're more worthy than anyone else, not because of any merit that we have. It's just a gift of grace, like, like dew from the heaven. It's a gift, and, and we should respond then with humility. Uh, all of us collectively suffer from what psychologists call false consensus bias. Uh, I know you suffer from it because I do too. False consensus bias is this belief that uh, you hold a certain opinion and therefore all smart people must hold that same opinion, right? Uh, if, if you believe it, then all smart people must agree with you. And if you find out that someone who you used to think was smart suddenly has a different opinion than you, then you think not that you might be wrong, but we think that that other person must be defective in some way, right? That's false consensus bias. We, we think that everything that we think must be right. And, and this is the attitude we see over and over in the world. It's, it's, it's uh, amplified by 10 times on social media, right? It's, it's I'm right, and you're not just wrong. You're stupid and worthless and wrong, and you're the reason that this country is in such bad shape. That's what the attitude we see over and over again. But but a life in Christ, a life that's united with Christ and united with other diverse people in Christ, is a life of humility. It's a life that's, uh, that fights against this kind of thinking. Uh, we have the opportunity to see people for who they really are, people who are made in the image of God, and that hopefully keeps us humble. Uh, one of my old pastors was always fond of saying, you'll never meet a person that Jesus wasn't willing to die for. When you start to see people through that lens, it becomes a little bit easier to express humility, seeing worth in other people. Uh, think about it a little bit like this, like taking a road trip, right? If you go on a road trip, you want to stop and eat somewhere, you can go anywhere you want, right? You can go to a hole-in-the-wall place, out-of-the-way place, fancy place, whatever you want, whatever you want. Now, if you go on a road trip with kids, you're not in charge, don't be fooled just because you got your hands on the steering wheel. You are not in charge. No. If you go on a road trip with kids, you eat wherever the kids are going to be happy, right? Now, you can respond to this situation in a couple of different ways. You could be grumpy and resentful and a little bit bitter. Or you could express a little humility and a little love for the weaker members of your traveling party and just pop a couple of tums in your mouth and hit the road again, right? You could respond with joy that you get to be a blessing to other people in a way that's going to promote unity, even though it's maybe not the choice you wanted. And, and these kinds of responses are going to promote unity. These three active responses are going to help us take the unity that God has given us, that we've been blessed with, and be able to pass it on to other people. We want to actively promote unity actively engage others who are different from us, actively express humility. And if we respond in those ways, we're going to be promoting unity. We're going to pass on that blessing that comes from God without diluting all the other ways in which we're diverse. And as we uh, kind of wrap up our time together, I want to remind us about a danger, a danger in seeking the wrong kind of unity. 
Uh, the temptation is really easy. It's easy for us to seek unity by just throwing our weight around, by saying, oh, well, if I'm right about this, then I must be right about these other things as well. But that's not always the case. Unity, spiritual unity, doesn't mean we have to be unified in all these other areas as well. It doesn't dilute the diversity that God has given us. It doesn't insist on having its own way at any cost. Spiritual unity, it should be refreshing. It should be life-giving. It's something that's sacred and is blessed by God, and it's the thing that should make the church stand out. It's the thing that makes us unlike anything else, that we've found a way to be together in spite of or because of the diversity that we have. It embraces diversity within the bounds of that redemptive history that makes us one. I want to leave you with a quote from D.A. Carson. He's a theologian, and this is what he says. He says, Ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not our common education, our common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they've been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they've all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they're a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. God, as we turn our hearts towards you and towards your son, Jesus, we recognize that you are uh, unity with diversity. You're three in one. You have uh, diverse personalities, diverse character, and yet you are united in the most significant ways. And uh, we pray that uh, our unity, our spiritual unity, would reflect that to the world, reflect the kind of love and acceptance that you have and be able to share it with the world. And I, I think, too, about Jesus' own prayer as he prayed for us, prayed for the church. He prayed that we might be one, that we might be uh, in you as you are in him and as he is in you. And, and, and his desire in this prayer is the same desire that we have, that the world may believe that you have sent Jesus, that that would be our message, that we've found a way to be together because of what you've done for us. And I pray that you would help us to actively live in unity together in such a way as to show the world the truth about Jesus and his great love. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.